All right, let's turn to Deuteronomy 6, talking about serious business. And we'll start with verse 4 in chapter 6. We studied uh, the latter part of 5 and those first three verses in 6. We're going to pick up with what is known as the great Shema, S-H-E-M-A. And the word Shema is the first word in our text. And it just means hear or listen to me. So uh, the the, uh, Jew would read the great Shema every day. And it consists of, uh, usually the great Shema would consist of verses 4 through 9 and then some other verses from Deuteronomy in different places. So it's a combination of texts. But they call it the great Shema because it's the great statement of faith of Israel. And it's the great statement of their obligation and what it means to be a, a, a real Jew what it means to be a real believer. And that's been said through the millennia. And so it's a, obviously a crucial text in Deuteronomy uh, and a crucial obligation of uh, men of God. So let's read from verse 4 through the end of the chapter. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. And you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build and houses full of all good things that you did not fill and cisterns that you did not dig and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve. And by His name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you and He destroy you from off the face of the earth. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested Him at Massa. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and His testimonies and His statutes which He has commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may go well with you, that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers by thrusting out all your enemies from before you as the Lord has promised." When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous, against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there, that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God, for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. 
and it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as He has commanded us. Amen. All right, let's look first of all at verses 4 through 9. The great Shema, hear, O Israel. And let's just stop there for a moment. The word Shema, hear, O Israel. You'll find this, and I've listed uh, several places in Deuteronomy there, where you'll find this same word, hear, O Israel. It's a common statement to the people of God. And what Moses is saying, listen up, everybody. Gather around everybody. So Israel was regularly summoned in assembly. And the reason they were summoned in assembly, we're all going to hear from God. Hear, O Israel. And the Word of God comes forth. Now, why is this important? Well, you can see that Israel in the wilderness, now we're at the end of that wilderness journey, but when they've been traveling through the wilderness, these are not people who are just readily submissive and obedient. These are knuckleheads. They're a lot like ourselves. They like to do their own thing. They like to go their own way. They like to wander around and do their own thing. God is saying, we're going to do this together. We're going to go through the wilderness, and I'm going to give you guidance, and you're going to need commandments because you're in a very dangerous place. And you start wandering off to the right or to the left, you're going to get yourself in a lot of trouble. And you will not preserve yourselves out here unless you obey the commandments. So all Israel was pulled together so that we all move together through the wilderness. Now, gentlemen, that's exactly what's going on today. It's, it's important for us all to do our personal Bible study. We really need to be doing that every day, just devotionally reading the Word of God, even if it takes just three, four, five minutes, read a paragraph out of the Bible, look to the Lord in prayer, ask Him to help you put that into practice, and then you go out the door. That, that's really essential for a life and a mind that is stayed upon Christ throughout the day. Every day we need to be taking in the Word. But then you have a communal obligation to be under the Word as well. That's the reason the family needs to come under the Word of God. Let's all hear it together. So I don't take my son off and have devotions in his room and then this son devotions in his room and my daughter and her devotions in her room. Let's all come together. Why? Because there's a sense in which the whole family is going to be obedient as a family moving together. Now, gentlemen, this, this is often missed in the West in a society where we're so individualistic. But this is also true of the church. So when you join a church or when you fellowship with the church or participate in the church, what you're doing is you're saying, this is going to be the assembly where I draw together with them and they represent the entire people of God around the world. And this is my little branch of the family. And we're going to get together every resurrection day, every day... Uh, first day of the week where we remember and celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ and we're going to th- hear thus saith the Lord as a whole community, a family, a spiritual family moving together through the wilderness with all of our cancer and all of our sin and rebellion and all of our diseases and all of our financial problems, all of us together, we're going to move together under the word of the Lord. That's the reason it's important for us not only to study the word individually but to proclaim it in family community and then hear it and proclaim it in church community. So it's not just, are you hearing the Word of God? Are you memorizing your verses? Are you hearing it in the community with which you are moving? And the whole community moves together. You'll find in the Old Testament, this is standard practice. So in the case of your churches, 
uh, you pull together the people of God. Somebody in your church is deciding who to do that. Either the ministers do it or in Presbyterian church, the elders decide when are the people of God going to be brought together on a regular basis and they're going to hear, Hear, O Israel. And all Israel moves together. And our spiritual lives are meant to be tied into these communities. And each of you who are heads of home, you are responsible for the word getting out in your community and for it being enforced in your community and moving together as a community called the family. And the pastors are, are concerned about the very same thing in church. So it's not just that uh, you know, pastors checking their numbers to see how many people are coming to their church, but it's rather if we're a community, we're summoned together to hear the word of God, and you can't hear it if you're not there. And it's not even the same to listen to it on the computer or get a tape. It's not quite the same as being in community. We all hear together. We yoke arms together and we say, Lord, we heard you and we're going to do this word together. And you find that's often the response of Israel. They hear the word and then they respond. It's almost like a liturgy. They respond, this we will do. You see that particularly in Exodus 24. You get this, this liturgy back and forth where God commands and the people respond. Now that's what's going on in the great Shema. The people of God are pulled together and they're told this is what's important to the Lord and this is the response that is required of all of us. Now look what is said. First of all, the Lord our God, the Lord is one in verse 4. The first thing you were being taught is who the Lord is. The Lord is one. You say, well, duh. <laughs> well, not so duh. If you're, going, if you're coming out of Egypt and you've been worshiping all kinds of gods, the moon god, the sun god, Ra. You've been studying, you've been uh, worshiping the Nile, the god of the Nile, the god of the alligators, the god of the snakes, and the greatest god of them all, Pharaoh himself. And you've been worshiping all these deities. And you're, not, you're really confused about who the deity is. He seems to have so many different personalities. Maybe there's one great essence behind all of them. I don't know, but there are all these different gods. First thing you need to know is that God is one. He doesn't have a whole bunch of different... Uh, uh, temperaments or wills or intentions. He has one intention. He is one God. And furthermore, he's the only God. And so if you'll look at the possibility of the meanings here, first of all, is singularity. That is, God is the only God. And we saw in chapter 3 and chapter 4 both that Moses is stressing this. It's the uniqueness or the singularity of God. There is no other God. Now, if you think it's difficult to say in our own generation that the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is the only God, and that is a difficult... That is the big scandal of our own day, to claim that your God is the only God or your religion is the only religion. That's the big scandal. If you think it's difficult today, let me tell you, it was very difficult. There are a lot of blood and guts that are going to get spilled as a result of this theological clash between Israel and the surrounding nations. It's going to cost people all kinds of things, including their lives, to make that statement. Moses knows what he's doing. God does too. That when you make that statement, it scandalizes everyone else because what are you doing? You're saying their gods are not gods. Let's be real clear about it. You're not saying that explicitly, but that's an immediate inference one would draw from what you're saying. And that's highly offensive. You don't say it to offend people. You're not saying you don't respect them. You're not saying you don't respect their freedom to believe whatever they want to believe and worship whatever they want to worship. You're simply making a theological statement that comes from the Bible. The Lord is God and He is one. He is the unique God. 
if you turn in the New Testament and try to find the parallel for this, wouldn't it be the Lord Jesus Himself? You'll find that in chapter 5 of John, He teaches us about the oneness of God, that there is no other God. And then when you get to John chapter 14 in the upper room, He says to His disciples, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by Me. No one comes to the Father, which is the name for Jehovah. In the, that's Jesus' gift to us, that we call God Father. No one comes to Him except through Me, says Jesus. And then when the, when the apostles began to preach, and you get in Acts chapter 4, Peter standing up before the Sanhedrin, and he says that salvation is found in no one else, only in the name of Jesus Christ. For there is no other name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. No other name. There's your New Testament equivalent. That Jesus Christ is not to be put into the pantheon of the greatest of the gods. He is the only God. He, he is the second person of the triune God, the only one who is. And that's exactly what's being said here. That the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, in addition to singularity, some scholars suggest maybe what... God is saying uh, as well is speaking of his own integrity. That is, God is, and, and literally uh, in, in, the, in the Hebrew language, there are just four words. Um, Jehovah, uh, our God is actually one word in Hebrew. Jehovah, our God, Jehovah, one. So, what we have here is a, is a pretty close translation. The only word, word that would be added would be uh, is. The Lord is one. And we're not sure exactly if that's what was meant. But I think that's probably, I think what you have in the ESV is the, is the best guess of, of most scholars. So, Jehovah, our God. Jehovah, one, literally. Now, this oneness can mean that Jehovah... Uh, has integrity. He is consistent from the inside of his being to the outside of his being, if you will. Or he is consistent from day to day. He is of one essence, and therefore it's always the same. He's the same, as the Scriptures say, uh, yesterday, today, and forever. Uh, That's what's said of Jesus Christ, because he is God incarnate. So what you have is God is one. He is consistent. He's the same. He's to be relied upon. Now, the only place in the Old Testament where you have a quotation of the great Shema is in Zechariah. You might turn there with me. Let's look at this one verse. Uh, It's the next to the last book in your Old Testament, and you'll find it on page 1769. Zechariah chapter 14. And in verse 9, you have the closest thing to a citation here where the prophet says, And the Lord will be king over all the earth. He's looking to the great coming of the day of the Lord. The Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one. And His name, one. It seems from that context that the way at least Zechariah is interpreting Deuteronomy is that for God to be one means He has no rival. He will come as King. He will be one. And His name will be one. He'll be number one, if you will. 
And actually, it's more than being number one. It's to be the only one. Uh, it seems to be that that is what is being said by Zechariah in interpreting this text. So when we come to it, that's then the, the thrust of it. And gentlemen, uh, you can see that our Christian lives begin with knowing who God is. If, if you uh, <clears throat> look sometime at the Westminster Shorter Catechism, you'll come to question three, which, which asks this question. What do the Scriptures principally teach? That's the third question in the Catechism. Here's the answer. The Scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. Okay? So you've got two things that summarize what all the Bible is trying to do. First of all, tell us who God is and what is it we're to believe about Him. And number two, what are we to do in response to that? And what we're going to get in Deuteronomy, of course, is exactly that pattern. Here's who God is. Now, there are a lot of things we can say about God, and there will be some more things said about God in this very text. We'll see. But the simple statement that's being made about Him here is, He alone is God. So whatever is said about Him, you are responding to the only God who is, and He has no rivals. And notice that our faith, our obedience rather, always starts with our faith in God Himself and what He reveals about Himself. We're not just told to go out and do some commandments because it will be good for us. No. First thing we're told is, let me tell you about God. And we get a theology lesson before we go out there and go to work. And that's the way it must always be in your thinking. The, the key to a Christian man is his heart and his mind. It's the center of his being. It's how he's thinking about everything. And we've got to be sure that we're thinking rightly and that everything that we do is motivated from our theological, get this, yes, you, theological commitments. Everything's flowing out of that. And you see the same pattern with the Apostle Paul in his, in his letter to the Romans or his letter to the Ephesians. You see it throughout Jesus' ministry. You see it here. Believe and then obey. You're not just told to go do it because I said so. You're told who's telling you that. You're told about Him before you go out and, and do your thing. And that's the way it must always be. The Christian faith is a reflective faith. As Bonhoeffer himself once said, those who believe, only those who believe are obedient. And only those who are obedient believe. So it starts with our belief and then obedience flows out of it. And then the obedience is the proof of our faith. And here's our faith. The Lord is one God. He's the only God. All right. Now, that having been given us then, now we're told what to do with it. Here's the second part of the catechism question. We, we see that uh, we know now what man must believe concerning God, and now we're going to get what duty does God require of man. Here it is. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. So we're to love the Lord. Now we've seen already that we're to obey the Lord. That's His love language. We've seen that we're to fear the Lord. That's the language of our worship. We reverence Him. We fear Him. We see Him as awesome. And we tremble before Him even though He's our Father. It's our Father that we love and revere. But the essence of it here is along with all of that, 
There's something that emanates from the very core of our being in addition to our reverence, and that's our deep love and affection and devotion and loyalty to Him. That's what's being taught here, and we do it with, first of all, with our whole selves, with our whole being. And you'll see that we're taught to love the Lord throughout Deuteronomy. I've listed several texts there where you'll find it in Deuteronomy. This is not the only place. It's a theme in Deuteronomy that our relationship with God is not just one of doctrine and principle. We don't just go to God to find out how am I supposed to live, give me the practical how-tos. We don't even go to God just to get good theology so that we can talk about Him. No, the purpose of our religion is to develop a personal relationship with Him. So you'll see, even in the Old Testament, as in the New, what God says to His people is always propositional and personal. It's doctrinal and relational. It's principial and it's ethical. You have both of those things always in God's conversation with us, what He has to say to us. And here He's saying, I want everything in you. If I'm the only God, you're not to divide your loyalties and your devotions and your affections with any other deities. There are no others. So I am to be the sole recipient of your affection for the deity and is to, to include everything about you. First of all, he says, with all your heart. With all your heart. Now in English, when we say heart, we normally mean the seat of our affections. The seat of our affections. Uh, and that would be true... Uh, probably in, in a, a, a Greek setting as well, that the Greek word for heart would mean affections. That's the reason that the Greek word for heart, uh, hang with me now just a minute. You, know, you have the Hebrew Old Testament, and then in the second century B.C., it got translated into Greek, which was a great gift to us because when Jesus, uh, you know, when the Gospels were given to us in Greek, we have the Old Testament in Greek that helps us see the connection between new and old. It's a wonderful gift. Second century B.C., Hebrew Old Testament that was by then you know, millennia old, a thousand years old, it was translated into Greek. And we look often to that Greek Old Testament to tell us how the uh, B.C. Hebrews would have read their Hebrew. And it helps us a lot translate our Hebrew. Now, if we go to this Greek Old Testament called the Septuagint and we look at how the Greek Old Testament translated the word heart, here's the word you get. Dianoia in Greek, which means mind. Now, interesting. Why would the Greek Old Testament interpret the Hebrew heart as mind? Here's why. The closest thing in Greek to the Hebrew idea of heart is mind. In Hebrew, the heart is not primarily the seat of your affections. It includes that, but it's the seat of your thinking, of your will, of your intentions, as well as your affections. And don't you find this in Proverbs? And we studied Proverbs, was it last year, year before? That the, all the issues of man come out of his heart. As a man thinketh, thinketh in his heart, so is he. Okay? So you think with your heart. It's the seat of, it's how your worldview comes out, your theology, your 
uh, program for your own life, everything's coming out of your disposition, out of your intellectual and willful disposition. That's your heart. And here's what the Lord's saying. I want your thoughts. I want your intentions. I want your will. I want your ambitions. I want the core of your being focused on me. I want you to love me with that whole center of your being. That's what's being said here. And primarily, your mind. Give him your mind. This is the reason that Paul says that our minds are to be transformed. Or rather, we're to be not conformed to the ways of this world, but transformed by the renewal of our minds. He's thinking like a Hebrew. So your mind has to be renewed. And I just wonder, with all the junk that you and I see on TV, even accidentally, and then all the junk that some of us are viewing intentionally, how do you expect the Lord to take a powerful residence in your mind or in your heart? You have to guard, the the Proverbs say you have to guard your heart for out of it come the issues of life. You have to guard your mind. You, you, You know, if you let spam and and viruses come into your computer, pretty soon you have no computer. You may as well throw it away. And you've thrown away several of them because they just get loaded up with junk and they're just hopelessly sick. You have to guard your computer. You put filters on it. Gentlemen, duh, you got this noggin up here. You got this heart. And it's fragile. And it's sensitive. And it follows certain stimuli. And you have to feed it correctly. Some of us are larger than we should be because we haven't watched our bodies carefully enough. And we've just been taking in M&Ms and candy bars and all kinds of stuff just indiscriminately. You can do that when you're 25, you young guys. When you get to be 59, you're going to be a blimp. And your brain is the same way. You just fill it with junk and you become sluggish and unusable. The Lord says... Love the Lord your God with all of your heart. Your whole strategy for your mind and your heart is to be uh, centered on God. Then he says, with all your soul. Now, the word here, you remember when we studied uh, Joseph, uh, I'm sorry, when we studied Job, we talked about this word because when Satan came to God and says, you know, I can't do anything with Job. Of course he's loyal to you because you made him rich and big family and healthy. You know, you put a hedge around him. I can't. Of course he loves you. And God says, okay, I'll take the hedge down. And you can have anything you want. You can do anything you want to to Job, but you cannot touch his nefesh, his soul, his self. So Satan, of course, got Job's body, didn't he? He had sores all over his body, killed his family, ruined his business, everything. But he never got Job's soul, his inner being. And that's the reason that Job never cursed God, because you can do anything you want to to a Christian man. But you can't get his soul. God's got an armor uh, guard around the soul, and and Satan can't get it. And so we will always praise him. That's the reason that David says in Psalm 103, verse 1, here's where you find out what this word really means. He says, Bless the Lord, O my soul. And then, the, you know, in Hebrew, you get in, in Hebrew poetry, you get the same thing said in two different ways. And that's exactly what you get in Psalm 103, verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Next line. 
all that is within me. Bless His holy name. So what is your soul? All that is within you. So if we were to talk about your affections, we would probably speak not of heart, if we're using Hebrew language, we'd probably speak of soul. So what the Lord is really saying here is, I want not just your mind and your intentions and your will, I want your affections. Your wife will really appreciate it if you remember to take out the trash on Tuesday morning. She'll really appreciate it if you mow the lawn, break the leaves. She'll really appreciate it if you don't make a mess and throw your trousers on the floor and expect her to pick them up. She'll really appreciate it if you are very intentional about doing loving things. But what you know she really wants? What we call your heart. What the Hebrews would call your soul. She wants your affection. She wants to know that you cherish her. And sometimes, gentlemen, you have a very hard time trying to figure out how to communicate that. <laughs> well, honey, I took out the trash, mowed the yard, picked up the leaves, and didn't put my pants on the floor. What do you mean do I love you? I just want to know if you love me. And this is what the Lord has said. The Lord your God is one God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with everything that is within you. And you can cultivate those affections. We'll see how to do that in just a moment. It is your duty to cultivate those affections. And now with your wife, it's a little harder. You know why? She's not God. She ain't perfect. And she's not only not perfect, sometimes she's bad. And she can withhold sexual favors. She can burn your toast. She can, you know, scorch your favorite suit. I mean, she can do all kinds of things that just really toast you. And so, but hey, even with a sinner... You're in covenant with that woman and you can cultivate a deep affection for her just like the Lord has cultivated a deep affection for you, you miserable iron head. He's loved you. And so you take that love that is unconditional, that is in spite of all your sins, and you give that love to your wife. Now that's hard because she's still sinning against you and she's going to do it again tomorrow. But now with the Lord, He's perfect. He scares us to death sometimes. But He's perfect and just and holy and good in all of His ways. And He's also kind. But we are the ones who have the trouble, not because He's imperfect, but because we don't like perfection. We'd rather that God come down a notch. It'd be a little bit easier for us to understand and to deal with. So we have to cultivate an affection now. And it's in some ways, in some ways, gentlemen, it's just as hard as having affection for your wife for two different reasons. Your wife is imperfect. God is perfect. So how are you going to cultivate affection for your wife? Well, you learn to love someone who's imperfect. It's called grace. How do you learn to love someone who's perfect? I mean, not pretending to be perfect. He is perfect. How do you love someone like that? How do you cultivate that affection? You learn to love perfection, to admire it, to bow down before Him, to acknowledge that you're not perfect, which is the big problem you have in loving perfection because every time you love it, or in this case you love Him, you're condemning your own flesh because you're not perfect. And you, loved, you learn to love to bow down. And that's the way you'll love Him. That's the way you'll develop an affection for Him is coming to Him bowed down, humbled in the dust, and learning to love Him from there. 
That's how you cultivate a deep inner affection for the Lord. You're going to have to bow down to love Him. And those who do bow down do love Him. And those who love Him bow down. And then he says, not only your soul, but with all your might. Now, this word is really interesting. Uh, I won't give it to you in Hebrew, but the English translation, literal translation, really would be an adverb. With all your... It's not, it's not using with all your... It just says, uh, love him with overmuchness. Or lo- it says, exceedingly. The word actually best translated is exceedingly or greatly. So, love Him exceedingly. And it's translated here with all your might. And uh, Jesus gives us that sort of translation when He cites this verse. When someone asks Him what's the greatest commandment, of course, He cites this verse as the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind. He says mind, you notice. And strength. And your neighbor's yourself. The first one is this one. And He says with all your strength, with all your might. Now, some scholars suggest that Uh, there's a a strong possibility that what God is saying here through Moses is to love Him with your substance, your physical substance, or of course this would be finances. And for you Presbyterians, this is stewardship season, you know. (laughs) And that's a possibility here. And you know what? Uh, As we we said last Sunday, for those of you who are here at Second, uh, that greed is a very subtle sin And uh, I cited uh, Tim Keller's book, uh, Counterfeit Gods, where he says no one in all of his history, 30 years of being a pastor, has ever come to him and said, I'm really struggling with the sin of greed. Ever. They've come to him with everything. But never anyone has ever said, I'm struggling with the sin of greed. Pastor, could you help me? And I thought about it. I've never had anybody do that either. And why is that? Greed inoculates itself against itself. And you defend yourself against it. In subtle ways. You don't even want to hear it. The way, one way to clear out a crowd is get somebody to stand up and give a stewardship sermon. And you, you can disperse any crowd, no matter how angry they are. You want people to go home? Just get a preacher up on the, on the post there and let him, let him preach on stewardship. And everybody will flee and get out of there. Why? And it's because it is a very sinister destructive strategy of the evil one to get you to love another God. And it's the best one that he's got to offer you right now, especially in this culture. But it was true in Jesus' time too. That's the reason that Jesus preached on that topic more than prayer and faith put together. Because it was a dangerous idol that was alluring the people. And here I think God is saying, I want you to love me with your physical self your substance, and your body. So we lay down our lives. I mean, Paul, the New Testament translation of this portion of the Shema would be where the Apostle Paul says, uh, I plead with you, brethren, in view of His mercies, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. And so we get ourselves in our minds, well, you know, if I ever had to die for the Lord, you know, I'd do that. And, and then we don't tithe. I mean, go figure. Uh, he wants all of our physical substance. So He wants the deepest internal affections of your heart, as we would say in English. He wants the intentionality and the strategy and the plans of your mind. And He wants everything you've got. He doesn't just want 10%. He wants 100%.
So you manage not just your 10%, which is hot, and you need to get rid of it because you don't own it. Get rid of that stuff. That's stealing to hold on to 10%. Get rid of that right away. Then take the rest of the 90% and be very careful that every percentage of it is being managed out of the love of God. He wants you to love Him with not 99% of your property, 100% of your property. That's a huge challenge, isn't it? That's the duty that's required of man if God is who He says He is. That's the meaning of the great Shema. Well, we better move on, hadn't we? Let's go to what He says next in verses 6 through 9. It's not only with your whole self, but it's in every situation. And we're going to deal with this quickly. First of all, He says, I command you these things today that they shall be on your heart. So, this has to do with you personally. It has to do whether you're in the light or in the dark, whether you're in public or in private, whether you're in this country or another country, whether you're here or a traveling salesman somewhere else, everywhere that you are, everywhere, every situation, your mind and heart are a tabernacle for the Lord's presence, and you keep your mind stayed on Him. That's what He's asking for. You'll notice, secondly, that it has to do with your family, and He says, teach them diligently, put the Word of God everywhere. He says, when you talk, when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, here's what He's saying. You not only teach the Word in family worship when you bring your tribe together and you administer the Word of God and lead them in prayer and maybe singing if your family's not too embarrassed. You do that. But He's saying, look, it's more than that. When you're having devotions, that's your worship time. You're expressing to God your devotion, you're confessing your sins, and you're asking for His help. But then you teach your children. And how do you teach them? Look at, the, look at how, what He says we do. He doesn't say you get them in a classroom. I have nothing against classrooms, but that's not the way we do it at home. Here's the way you do it at home. It's when you sit down, when you get up, when you're walking by the way. I I really think that one of the most helpful moments of instruction in the family is when you get them around your dining room table. You say, huh, Pastor, you're a dinosaur. Nobody gets around a dining room table anymore. Okay, whatever it is, your couch. Or at least turn the TV off. And you eat, and you have to look at each other. Now, I know that's radical for some of you. But you eat and you have to look at each other. And your 14-year-old daughter, who won't look up from her bowl, every once in a while has to look up. And even if she won't laugh at your dumb little jokes, she'll crack her, part of her face will crack a smile every once in a while. And you're waiting. You're just waiting for something to come up. What happened in school today? Oh, well, Barbara, you know, she was her old self. What do you mean? Well, she was marginalizing me, you know, and you wouldn't talk to me, huh? Great. So, uh, Mary, tell me, what do you do about that? Well, I don't know. No, I mean, I really want to know. What do you do about that? So I'm going to engage my daughter in conversation. We're talking about the Lord as we sit down. And then when we're riding in the car, not walking along the way, because we typically ride in the car. When I get my kids one-on-one in a car, this is Jesus time, man. And so I don't start talking about Jesus. I scare the bejabbers out of them. So they, they you know, oh, Dave's going to preach again. No, no, no. Let's talk about you. And let's ask some questions about you. And then let me ask some questions about how you think about you and your environment. And how, this is called the case study method. This is what it is. You know, Harvard Business School became famous for case study method, to teach through cases. This is the way you do it. You bring your family together. Thus saith the Lord. You teach. You respond in worship, 
And then as you go through life, you get these moments. You're looking for them. You don't tell them. You'll scare them to death. But you're looking for these moments when you're walking along the way, riding in the car, sitting at the table, and you get the case study method. What are the cases that you present? You don't present any cases. They present the cases. And you're the wise old man who's supposed to be in response to these cases. And you say, well, I don't know how to do that. Well, you better get some help because that's your job. Well, you say, where do I get help? You better go to church. You better get somebody to teach you the Bible. You better have a friend. You can say, hey, what would you say? I don't want to say anybody in particular. It's not anybody's kids I especially know. But what if you had a kid that, what would you do? What would you say? And you have confidential friends who are advising you how to implement the case study method with your children. That is how they learn. Now, gentlemen, you cannot use the case study method with your children if you do not use the case study method with yourself. The place you start is with yourself. How do I handle this situation in my workplace with my heart and my mind and my soul and my body and my finances completely committed to Jehovah? How then do I handle this? And you begin to apply it and you meditate. What does it mean for a totally devoted man to handle this situation? And of course, if you're like myself, you find out a totally devoted man would handle it a lot differently than I would. And that's called repentance. And I often need help because the most difficult situations you get into are the ones that really tick you off big time. Now you've got a temper, which means you're not going to make your best decision. And you better get some help. You better have some brothers who can say, man, you're angry. And you have really blown this thing out of proportion. You better have some brothers who can do that. Because what you want to do is to get control of yourself by the Holy Spirit and act in every situation as a man whose heart and soul and strength are given to the Lord. So you work the case study method for yourself. And then when your children come along, you don't preach to them, although I think preaching is a fine word, as you would expect, I would think. But asking questions is the right way to preach one-on-one. Honey, what do you think? Honey, what have you, what have you read anywhere, including the Bible, that would inform you on, on this? Or what have you seen others do that might be helpful in this situation? Have you talked to your friends about it? See, I just ask a whole bunch of questions. Then if she says, well, I don't know, I don't know. Well, you know, honey, you really need to begin to know. See, I'm not so concerned that she do just the right thing right now. What I'm concerned about is her heart, her soul, and her material being being completely devoted to the Lord. So I just have a bunch of questions to ask to find out if that's how she's thinking. And if it's not, I'm going to address the heart and the soul more than I address the immediate situation. I want to know the heart and the soul. You're a pastor of your family. So you start by applying things yourself, and then you don't, you're not so quite so intimidated in asking somebody else about how they're handling it because you're already trying to do it yourself. As a matter of fact, let me tell you something. If your family is going in the right direction, and I talk especially now to younger men who have young children. If your family is going in the right direction, by the time your children are eight, you will begin to learn from them. I'm serious. And by the time they're 13, you will actually ask for their advice. And this is the way it's supposed to work because you should see a deeper development of that heart and soul as the generations go by. 
you should expect that your children are ahead of you where you were at that age. And knowing some of you, it wouldn't take a whole lot. Uh, but, and your children need to know that you respect them. Uh, and I tell my children all the time, I just I can't believe what you're doing and what you know and your attitudes at your age, I just, that you're way beyond where I was. That's a refrain in my house because I'm not flattering anybody. I'm just telling them the truth. And it's an encouragement to them. Oh, really? That's, that's kind of, well, maybe, maybe we'll be okay. They really are way ahead of me. And if your children are, if your family is healthy spiritually in that sense and they really are ahead of you, you need to tell them. Or maybe some of them are ahead of you and some of them are not. Tell the ones that are ahead of you that they're really tracking the way they're supposed to be tracking. It's a delight to watch it. And you should expect to learn from them. And I learned from my junior highs, literally, a lot. And they catch me in a lot. I've already told you when I got called Reverend Ass by my daughter one time. And that, you know, sometimes they're not real tactful in the way they talk to their father. But nonetheless, they will teach you. Okay, notice not only in the family then, not only in the family, but in the community, thirdly. That wherever we go, we're applying this. Personally, guarding our own hearts and minds, Coaching, pastoring, leading our families, and then influencing the community. Put it on the doorpost in your home. Not only that, put it on the gates, the city gates, your public life. And I'm not saying go out there and quote a bunch of Bible verses out of context. I'm simply saying be a Christian man, a believing man, a devoted man, a loyal man in the arena where everybody is not loyal. And that's what Moses is saying. Get it out there. What else do you want to be known for? Please tell me. Don't you want to be known as a man who's predictable, who's biblical, who has a heart for people? He actually loves God and loves people. That's what you want to be known for in the community. Now, second big category, and boy, we are moving slowly, so i got ten minutes. Here we go. Put your seatbelt on. Second big category is beware. Beware of what? Beware of some possible side roads that will really screw you up big time. What's the first one? Your success. In your success, do not forget God. The big fear in Deuteronomy is Israel's apostasy. And you see it all the way through Deuteronomy. And now, in one sense, that's bad news because it kind of sounds like God doesn't trust us. (laughs) But should He? The good news is this. God does know that we're going to apostatize. And we did, big time. And we got thrust out of the land and sent off to Babylon for 70 years plus. This book anticipates that. And we're going to see it more and more when we go through Deuteronomy. We're given the answers for not if it happens, but when it happens. This is how good your God is. He thunders from Mount Sinai. Thou shalt not. Thou shalt not. He thunders His warnings against you and terrifies you to try to keep you from destroying yourself. And then, when you get ready to destroy yourself, He comes and rescues you. He anticipates that storyline the whole way through Deuteronomy. And in the background, you can hear it. He's warning you of exactly what you're going to do. And He's already prepared the way to deliver you. It's a very gracious book with all of its power and all of its morality and all of its strength. It's a very gracious book. Just like God in all of His holiness 
and all of his awesome righteousness is a very good God. Now, he says, first of all, in your success, do not forget God. We don't have time to look at it. And by the way, when we get to Deuteronomy 8, we are going to deal with that. How does your success make you forget God? We'll talk about it in detail. Secondly, verses 14 15, in your socializing, do not worship their gods. So when you go into this land and you're trying to have you know, a good business and you want to have customers, you want to have a social network that takes you to the highest places, you want to be friends with the right people, fine, do it. But don't worship their gods, which means you're going to be left out of some cocktail parties in Israel. You're going to be left out of some business deals in the Holy Land because you're not going to go along with the theology of everybody around you. And God's thundering at them right now. I'm telling you right now, don't associate with their gods. Now, I've mentioned here 1 Kings 11. You know what that is. That's Solomon. Wisest man on the face of the earth. The end of his life, total screw up. Why? He was fraternizing in ways inappropriate. He was marrying ungodly women. He had hundreds of them. And their gods became his gods. And his life ended very poorly. And this is an anticipation of that tendency. You get successful, you start moving in other circles, and you don't want to be offensive, and you don't want to do anything to risk the bottom line, including your reputation. And he's saying, watch out. Thirdly, Watch out that in your struggles you do not test God. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested Him at Massa. And of course Massa was when they were thirsty, didn't have water, and they started murmuring against God and tested Him. And of course, once again, God is good. And He gave water out of a rock. That's how good He is. He'll give you what you need, miraculously. Uh, But we're not to grumble and to test Him in the midst of our struggle. So he's saying here, here's the other side road or distraction that's possible. When your tough times come, you're tempted to say, well, this thing just doesn't work. I've tried Christianity, it just doesn't work. Christianity works only if it works in your struggles. And it does. You just weren't thinking about God appropriately. You thought that God was a big candy machine. You put a quarter in, you get your candy bar out, and every time you put the quarter in, you get what you want. That's the way you saw God, some sort of pat you on the top of the head machine. He's not your mascot. He's your God. And you're a sinner, and you don't deserve to breathe. And if he gives you a breath, he's the one who gave it to you, and he had a reason for it. And it's gracious that you have a breath and a heartbeat. And not only that, but when he takes you out of here, He takes you to a glorious place that your mind cannot imagine. And so stop your grumbling. You're in the wilderness, but you're going to the Holy Land. And yes, things are tough. Guess whose fault that is? And take your responsibility and take your medicine and not with a stiff upper lip, but with worship for Almighty God who is just and holy and right in all His ways. Just check out Job. So be very careful that in your struggles, you do not test God like we did at Massa. And that's our tendency. So watch out for these three things. Now lastly, number three, we've already touched on this, but he comes at it in a powerful way at the closing six verses here when he says you've got to teach these things. 
Now notice he says, when your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules and so on that the Lord has commanded you? What he's saying first of all is, you're not going to get that question unless you exemplify God's law. So in order to be a teacher of your family and of those in your businesses and those over whom you have some influence, in order to be a teacher, you have to exemplify the law of God. Otherwise, no one's going to even ask. If you don't have discipline for your family, your kids are never going to ask you, hey, why do we have that rule? Because you don't have any rules. If you don't have a philosophy for how your family is living, no kid's going to ever ask you, why do we do it this way? Why do we think about it this way? So gentlemen, the first assumption of being a godly man who has an opportunity to educate other people is that you're doing something distinctive. Your family is distinctive. When kids are two years old, they're learning to do things that later they find are distinctive. You know, they find out when they're about six years old. You know, everybody doesn't go to church. I'm a little ticked off at this. I've, been, I've had the wool pulled over my eyes for the past four years. You know, my parents were making me think this was ordinary behavior. And that I was not supposed to complain about it. Well, I've got a few words for them right now. So, Dad, I don't want to go to church anymore. Why do we have to go? Now, what happens when you get a question like that? That kid's questioned my authority. I'm going to show that kid where to get off. (laughs) Bad reaction. Look at the text. What is the opportunity here? The opportunity is to explain God's deliverance, verses 21 through 23. Look what Moses said. Moses could have gone straight to verse 24 and said, you do it because I said so. Which is not an infrequent answer coming from some of the fathers in this room. And it's true, verse 24, 25. But before you get to that, there's a deeper answer. Gentlemen, this is what it means to teach while you walk along the way. When you get a challenge to your authority, you're saying, bring it on, man. Make my day. You just asked me the key question of the universe. Why do we go to church? What a fabulous question. You're an intelligent child. You love your daddy. You're looking at me to give you the answers. And I'm going to give them to you. But first I'd like to ask you a question. Why do you think we go? I want to know what's in your soul. Why do you think we go? And all the while I'm asking questions as the father who's got my own answers. But I want to know what your answers are first. And then when I hear your answers, I might ask you a few questions. Well, what about this? What about that? I'm going to get you to think so that you get the reason that we go to church because I'll tell you what now, gentlemen, the reason for going to church is more important than going to church itself. That's what you get in these verses. Let me tell you, children, about who it is we worship when we go to church. Do you realize that our forefathers were slaves in Egypt? That we were being oppressed and destroyed? That our children were taken right out from us and some of them were killed? Do you realize that when we were married, they could split our families and do whatever they wanted to us? Do you realize that God miraculously came down from heaven and moved an old man named Moses and brought him into Egypt to take us through the river of the... the, the uh, the sea, the Red Sea, and divided it. You realize that He took us to a mountain and there He gave us water out of a rock. Let me tell you why we go to church.
Do you realize that we were dead in our trespasses and sins and that we deserve to go to eternal hell? Do you realize what God did? He sent His own Son to die on a cross for us. And do you realize what He did? He brought Him roaring out of the grave to say to us, you're going to come roaring out of the grave too. Honey, don't you think a God like that needs to be worshipped? So I'm so glad you asked. (laughs) So we explain God's deliverance. And we take every challenge to our authority as an opportunity. And then lastly, expect God's blessing. And we've got to close. The two things here are His commandments and His promises. And I'll come back to that last verse that should have caught your attention when Moses says, and it will be righteousness for us. We need to talk about that. We'll do that later. Let's pray. Father, thank You. Thank You for revealing Yourself to us as God. Thank you for letting us know there is no other God. We don't have to be, be concerned about it or to be confused about it. You've told us. You've revealed it through great power. We have, no, we have no reason to question you, even though we do. And having revealed yourself to us, Lord, we want to thank you for calling us to be the men who love you. What a privilege to be men who know and love their God. And thank you for setting us up as the ones who are to teach others by the way that we live and by the conversations along the road. And we want to thank You, Lord, for the promise that one day this good land that You've promised will come to us in all of its fullness, the new heavens and the new earth, where there will be milk and honey, where there will be joy and gladness, displacing every darkness, every evil, every bit of strife that is in this world. And it is with gratitude that we bow our heads before the living God and we would walk out of here as men loyal to you from our hearts and our souls as well as our bodies. In Jesus' name, amen.